I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. And I wanted to do the impossible, which was to reach back through time and to stop what was to come next, was that my mother would go on to lose two more children, um, a war, several firms, and then profoundly lose her mind. And what I realized is that it took her such courage to regain her mind. And it took more than that, it took self-forgiveness. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, the literary director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our podcast, Beyond the Page. Acclaimed memoirist Alexandra Fuller grew up in a memorably eccentric family in Zimbabwe. As she has said about her first book, the emotionally indelible and often hilarious, Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. People think the book is a love letter to Africa, but really it's a love letter to my mother. So my mother, or Nicola Fuller of Central Africa, she sometimes likes to call herself, considered that God had given her a pair of ovaries um, for one reason only, and that was to produce a biographer. And so when, when she was pregnant with my older sister, Vanessa, she, um, in pursuit of this, read my sister, the fetus, the entire works of Shakespeare in the womb and um, some of the sonnets. And the upshot was my sister was born functionally illiterate, (laughs) willfully illiterate. And actually she even um, struggles with uh, vocabulary. So she can get in the sort of ballpark of a word that she's looking for, but she can really sort of hardly ever nail it right on the head. So when I was growing up, I was always baffled by the fact that my sister confused hitchhikers and hijackers. And and, um, not that long ago, I I was home um, under the tree of forgetfulness, actually. It really exists. And on the farm, 
And my father, as the whole year that he was 69, um, kept saying, well, that's it. This is about, I'm going to be three score year and 10, and now I have to snuff it. And I, and we would say to him, you know, dad, it's just because it's in the, the Bible. It's not like an instruction or anything. And he said, no, I'm not going to bat some other chap's innings. That's not cricket. So we had to, I know it's so much fun having parents that live in Zambia. I can just keep throwing them under the bus and there's really bugger all they can do about it. Um, but I, um, uh, so anyway, we now have to troop out to the baobab tree under which my father wants to be buried, and so he selects the tree that he wants to be buried under. But my mother, who does not like to be absent from any drama, now she has to select the tree she wants to be buried under, and it gets kind of competitive, and my father considers that her tree's too close to his tree. <coughs> and he is... <clears throat> with good reason terrified that her dogs will dig him up. And so <laughs> he moves his tree a quarter of a mile away and then mum moves her tree. And I mean, this could have gone on all night. So my sister and I said those magic words which always managed to rein my parents in, which was, gosh, look at that. Isn't it cocktail hour? And, <clears throat> and that line, by the way, works, whether you use it at 6 a.m. or 6 p.m. And so they went back to the Tree of Forgetfulness and we had a few cocktails and then we had some lovely South African wine. My parents um, drink in, in, Af in Afrikaans, I love this, they call it papsak. It's the wine that comes in the tinfoil bag and it's called papsak because when you drink it, it goes flat. And my mum says, but it's silver, and it's probably pure silver. And if you think about it that way, it's just fabulous. And she says, in any way, you're American, and you Americans are very fond of your teeth. And this wine is fabulous because it works both ways. You drink it, and it can get you drunk, but also it strips the enamel off your teeth, and so you'll have gleaming fangs. <laughs> so <laughs> we drink a box of Pupsack, and then <clears throat> my... You know, we're talking about my dad's funeral, as one does, and um, my sister gets quite tearful and sort of maudlin. She goes, my God, Bobo, I can't stand it. When dad dies, you're going to have to do the urology. I just want to add as a side note, my sister also lives in Zambia and can do bugger all about the fact that I'm saying all this about her. It's so lovely because she really, three years older than me, bossed me around horribly as a child. So I just want to warn you, if you're nasty to anyone in your family, be careful. You don't know if they're going to grow up and be a writer. <laughs> anyway, having failed miserably with my sister, who's now willfully illiterate, my mother focused her not inconsiderable ambition on me. And um, luckily for her, the Rhodesian government and a war kind of coincided with her efforts because when I should have been going into kindergarten, um, it was too dangerous to... We lived on the eastern part of what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and there were landmines in the road between our house and the school, and they didn't think that was very good for the health of five-year-olds. So what the government did was send out correspondence courses. 
and the mothers were supposed to teach their children at home, which I'm sure was fabulous for some children, but I had my mother. And so what she did was she'd get this correspondence packet from what was then Salisbury, now Harare, and she'd look through it, I have vivid memories of this, take out the mathematics and she would sort of throw that over her shoulder and she would say don't worry Bobo you can always pay someone to count for you. Now you can never pay someone to write for you though so who are you going to write about? And then she would carry on living a kind of incredibly dangerous life that I watched from as much of a distance as I could. And I would write these story of the week that I would send back to Salisbury. It was supposed to be an essay about what you'd done that week. And they kept sending back reports saying, this is a very creative and imaginative story, but we're supposed to be sticking to the truth. Anyway, I then went on to school where I failed miserably at mathematics. I still can't count. Um, I, didn't, I didn't actually understand the concept that you could count to 100 until I was about 15. And um, I went on um, to university and then I came back to Zambia and I met my, an American river guide and um, I fell in love with him and, and, um, and we got married and had a baby and then I got malaria and nearly died and that made my American husband a little bit freaked out and so he decided to take because Africa's all very nice and romantic and lovely until it starts doing things like that to you. After getting married Fuller moved with her husband to Wyoming where she still lives. America Fuller observed was filled to overflowing with two things she had ached for all her life but until then never had pop culture and freedom of speech. It was a thrilling if complicated transfer of allegiances. Her children were US citizens, but she was not. A situation that a few years later, she decided to change. What she did not foresee at the time was that it would be in America and as an American that she would become a writer. I thought I better become an American citizen or they're going to throw me out of this place and my children are US citizens. Forgive me, I once said American citizen in Canada and someone threw a maple leaf at me. Um, and so I uh, went through the class to become a US citizen and um, my father said that's good because we never really wanted you anyway. And I, um, I was terribly moving. I went to Kemmerer, Wyoming to get sworn in and the most dignified person they could find to do the swearing in was the dentist and we were all sobbing actually it was a um, an incredibly moving ceremony I, well for one thing I had to renounce the prince and um, I, I don't I said you know if you mean the chap with big ears I think I could just about manage that but if you mean the fellow who sang purple rain I won't and, <laughs> um, what the dentist said to us, and I loved this, and there were people from Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador and Mexico, um, and a Canadian, God knows why, and there I was. And the dentist said to us, whatever has brought you from your place that you love, of course you love the land that birthed you, but whatever hunger, and whatever anger, and whatever need, and whatever sorrow has brought you here, we welcome those things. Don't lose them. Give us your anger and your hunger and your sorrow. And never lose that. And it was the most wonderful blessing because what I knew was that the thing that I'd hungered for all my life was my voice. 
and that now I was here and it was protected. And that was the greatest gift. Of course, the harder part of that is that it also takes a tremendous amount of courage to honor freedom of speech. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to sit bravely and hear one another. And that is something I think that in the 10, 11 years since I've been a US citizen, we are losing that art. And it is one um, that I remind myself to relearn every day that the gift of freedom of speech does not come without enormous responsibility and that responsibility is the courage to attempt to really hear one another. Anyway, <laughs> I, um, I wrote, um, I, you know, I had to be a writer, I didn't really have a choice because I couldn't count. Um, so I wrote 10 wildly unsuccessful novels, all of which were rejected, and then my agent fired me. And my husband, now my ex-husband, not for this reason, went to go and climb um, active volcanoes in Mexico rather than live with a depressed suicidal writer. Um, but before he left, he put an envelope on his computer that said only to be opened in the event of my death. Um, so I did wait till he got to the bottom of the driveway and then I, I ripped it open and it was such a boring letter. I have to tell you, blah, 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 and sure, baffling too. It was all, lots of numbers in it, um, which I ignored. And then at the sort of things like mortgages and I don't know, insurance and stuff. And, but at the bottom it said, I think you should just write the truth. And so he was gone climbing volcanoes for six weeks. And in that time I wrote, um, don't let's go to the dogs tonight. And much to my surprise and also slightly um, too late horror, the thing was accepted and published and now I had to phone home um, and admit that I'd done this terrible thing. I mean, you know, my mother um, drinks a lot. She's got a certificate from an insane asylum in Harare proving that she's mad and she knows how to handle a Uzi submachine gun, so you don't mess with her. And now... Um, so I phone home and um, it's, it, it, luckily they have very dodgy cell phone reception and the cell phone lives in a sort of hut on top of an anthill on the farm. This is the only place anyone can hear it ringing and then my father usually picks it up and he goes, hello, and he goes, hey, one of you, and then I can hear him say to my mother, it's one of the kids, and he's only got two to choose from. <laughs> and uh, no, I can't tell which one, they all sound the same to me. And, probably wants money or something. Are you pregnant? And you just go to speak. <laughs> so I hand the phone to mum and I said, the good news is I've been published. Um, and she goes, well, what can the bad news possibly be? And I said, oh gosh, I'm sorry, mum, the line's gone. Very bad, I can't, hello? And I hung up. And um, anyway, mum was jolly furious with me and when she read the book really cross actually and she um, organized sanctions and boycotts against me for several years and she was very good at them because she learned them from the Rhodesians and so no one north of the Limpopo or south of the equator would talk to me and if I walked to the Gymkhana club people would look at one another and go and uh, my mother said you've got to be very careful what you say to her she's she will put you in an awful book and, and, but she was also sort of slightly embarrassed because um, to, she tried to sort of distance herself from me. So the first thing that she told everyone was, well, of course, you know, child was probably switched at birth. And 
I said, you know, that's actually not very likely because I look just like you. And actually, the older I get, the more like her I look. And um, so, yeah, she found that a bit hard to squeeze, square mouth of. So then she started to tell everyone, well, you know, of course, she's American now. And they love to write books about how they weren't hugged enough as children. And then they go on the Oprah Springer show and they cry. <laughs> Which makes it sound as if my mother doesn't love Americans, which is actually not true. She is crazy about the US. Um, she came over here to visit me with my sister, um, you know, the functionally illiterate one. And I, I don't know how many of you are not US citizens, but if you're not from here, they make you fill out this green form on the airplane that says things like, you know, are you now, have you ever been a Nazi, and are you a terrorist, and do you plan to blow up the country, and are you carrying drugs, and do you have more than a million dollars and are you armed to the teeth and, you know, blah, blah. And so, do you have contagious diseases? And my sister didn't bother to read the thing and she just went, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the whole way down. And my mother says, it was just fantastic. <laughs> we, go, we got to Atlanta and the border patrol seized your sister and frog marched her off and he had to waddle because he had a gun strapped it every appendage and they took her into this little room and I could just see it was a slither of glass and I could peer through it and it was just your sister and a thousand weeping Mexicans it was heavenly <laughs> <laughs> One thing all writers learn, of course, is that family stories are never really finished. At least not while the subjects of those stories are still alive and able to give their own version of events. In her larger-than-life mother, it's safe to say, Fuller had a subject with strong opinions of her own. One of the things my mother had said to me after I'd written Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, one of her more sort of cutting I, I, objections was, she said, you never asked me who I am. You just wrote the book, you made assumptions. She said, but you know, I didn't start existing when you were born and I didn't stop existing when you left home. And so I said to my mother, well, why don't I do an interview with you the way I would with anybody else? So I invited my mother to come to Scotland with me because um, I wanted to go to a country where it's illegal to have guns and ammunition <laughs> in the room. And um, I did an interview with her and, um, and it was a very hostile interview and I know that uh, writers in the room will know this. Very often you might walk away from an interview and you may not remember the words that were said, but you will remember the atmosphere of the room when you're doing the interview. And the atmosphere was just incredibly uh, stormy and threatening. And Actually, it was a eugenics lesson. My mother kept saying things like, I, of course, am 100% Highland Scottish blood and your father's English, so that makes you a mongrel, and there's always been rumors of Armenians on his side of the family, and I think they're terribly disloyal people. Too bad the genocide wasn't more complete, and you're just sort of um, in shock. And, um, and so I, I left these tapes in my office, sort of far away from me, where their karma wouldn't affect me. And then a few years ago, I got whooping cough, um, and um, I was quite sick. And the great thing about whooping cough is you, you sound really as sick as you feel, and no one will come anywhere near you, and you'll get all your reading done. 
And so I got all my reading done and then I got bored because uh, you're sick for a hundred days. And I got these tapes down um, from my office. And it turns out that a mild fever of 101 degrees Fahrenheit was precisely the remove needed with which the quality of my listening could change. And for the first time in my life, I could share my mother. Not as my mother, because if I insisted on listening to my mother with the label of daughter fixed to me, then she was just the ways in which she had failed me, or ways in which perhaps she had been a success. But she was existing in a very narrow prison. If I just heard her as a woman, though, everything changed. And she was telling me about the death of my older brother. My mother was 24 years old. And as I was listening to the tapes, I realized that I was almost old enough um, to be the mother of the woman that had lost that child. And she talks about walking out of the hospital in what was then Salisbury, now Harare. And it was October, so the clouds are building on the horizon and the jacaranda trees are, are in bloom. And the flower sellers are selling the agapanthas in Meikle Square. And my mother said this, it was impossible. The world was carrying on, but my world had ended. And I wanted to do the impossible, which was to reach back through time and to stop what was to come next was that my mother would go on to lose two more children, um, a war, several firms, and then profoundly lose her mind. And what I realized is that it took her such courage to regain her mind. And it took more than that, it took self-forgiveness. That is, at a woman in her late 50s, she forgave herself, herself the terrible, destructive impulses of her youth, which was her racism that had made her fight to keep Rhodesia white run. She granted her soul amnesty for the decisions she had made to stay in a violent country and lose three of her children. And she allowed herself the full, uncensored, politically incorrect, celebrating, self-celebrating expression of herself. And so I wrote Cocktail Hour Under the Tree of Forgetfulness in tribute to that woman. Um, my, this does not take away from the fact that my mother is still my mother. I sent my eldest daughter out to visit her last summer um, my daughter's 18, and she came back from Zambia, and she said, my God, you underwrote that woman. <laughs> and um, what apparently happened is, my sister was down staying on the farm with my mother, and my sister has thousands of children because, as my mother says, well, she can't, she's illiterate, you know, she can't read the small print on the pill bottle. And so... If only we had known about um, uh, Foster Freeze's idea about the aspirin between the knees could have saved the population explosion in southern Africa. Anyway, too late. So my mother's uh, all these um, grandchildren and my daughter, and my mother believes that dogs and children require plenty of fresh air and exercise, code for death march. So every evening she drags you out on this walk and they walked up to a tree and my mother goes, yeah, that's very interesting. There's a hole or something there. Let's go and explore it. So they walk up to the tree and it turns out to be a wild beehive. And um, 
the bees um, first they're just sort of buzzing around and then they start swarming uh, which I think is sort of reasonably bad news for any bees but super bad news if they're African wild bees so my mother um, who recognizes this before anyone um, says save the dogs and she scoops up as many dogs as she can and she swats her grandchildren to the ground and she runs uh, for safety and to her credit, my daughter confronted my mother and said, do you know, Granny, uh, you swatted your grandchildren to the ground and you saved your dogs. And my mother said, well, you know, my experience, grandchildren, easy come, easy go. Dogs are very special, though. And so, <laughs> but um, the karma being what it is, my mother was the only one that got stung. And, um, and yeah, which you would think would be bad news for her. But my sister, my daughter had wanted to take a photograph of my mother. And my mother kept saying, oh, you can't. I look like a love child between Joan Didion and Keith Richards. And I refuse for you, take a photograph of me, and then you're going to put it on your Facebook machine, and everyone will see it. So she wouldn't allow my daughter to do that. But then when she got stung by the bee, her face swelled up like a football. And she said, well, look at that. Not a single wrinkle. Who would have thought it? <laughs> Bees are nature's Botox. Take as many photos as you like. So thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. To hear Alexandra Fuller's unedited talk, to explore the free archive of Sun Valley Writers Conference recordings, and to learn more about the conference, please visit svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and thanks for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday, Michael Neese, and the Network Studios. Music